Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. Senate Democrats traditionally have quite a bit of power to affect a legislative session. And this year, Democratic State Senator Carla May of St. Louis is hoping to influence consequential debates over redistricting and allocating huge amounts of federal money. May joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Jefferson City, she is St. Louis Public Radio State House reporter. Sarah Kellogg. And joining us from the city of St. Louis, she is the official state senator for Jason Rosenbaum, representing the 4th <laughs> District that includes parts of St. Louis City and St. Louis County. Our guest today is... Carla May. Welcome back, Senator, to the show. Um, and I just want to add that even though the Senate redistricting situation is in flux, it is looking like you will still be my state senator no matter what those wacky appellate judges do. So that means if you win re-election this year, you get to remain in the intro of the theme music. So one more incentive to win, win re-election. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, the 2022 session is now officially underway. What are your general expectations for what's going to happen over the next few months? Absolutely. Well, I think that we have what we call what I call some must do's uh, that we have to, you know, mu- you know, need to accomplish during this session. And one of them, um, a couple of them, are we have to um, do the congressional maps. That's a must. And so I think we're going to, you're going to see a whole bunch of debate around those maps. Um, and we have a lot of people that are running for office. So those maps are going to be a very intricate part of uh, the session. Uh, that's a must do. And of course, budget is a must. So, you know, we have to get budget done no matter what. So we'll have a lot of conversations around, you know, all of the money, the influx of money. The uh, We definitely received the uh infrastructure uh, money. We've got that. We still have the ARPA funds. So a lot of money will be talked about. So those are two of the main things that's happening. And definitely redistricting. Uh, Right now, because we did have a special session or, you know, um, and I'm not sure if that's still out of the uh, um, out of the ordinary, but, you know, we still have to uh, have these maps uh, I don't think either the Senate or the House Committee, I think the House Committee did vote on some maps, but I don't think the Senate Committee voted on any maps. And I think that deadline is coming up the 23rd of January. And so we got to figure out filing is supposed to open up the last Tuesday in February. Are we going to file for election without maps? 
Um, are we running in old districts or are we running in new districts? So this is these are the things that are, are going to be on the table. And I think these are the must-dos that we have to get past. And they'll probably try to get them done early in session. So you serve in a chamber where the Republican majority has descended into bitter factions. How do you think Democrats can take advantage of this? Well, I think we have been very effective over the years in stopping a lot of uh, bad legislation, um, you know, because of the fracture. Uh, we've, we've been very successful in amending legislations to, to make it better. Um, you know, we, we've had some battles that we've lost, but a lot of them we won. Uh, I think that uh, last session, I think it was very successful in terms of getting some things done. I was able to get some things done, you know, especially budget wise, you know, we were able to, you know, what I say, I got about $50 million that impacted the fourth senatorial district uh, in itself. So I believe that, um, I believe that we will be able to get uh, some things done, you know, with the, uh, with the, especially with all of the battles going on internally in the Senate right now. So uh, Senator Rizzo yesterday proposed a rule change that raises the votes needed to pass a previous question motion, essentially making it harder to end a filibuster. You know, what are your thoughts on this? Is it the olive branch that, you know, Rizzo said it would be, you know, from the Republicans, you know, if it were to pass? So I think that um, making it harder to end a filibuster is good because cutting off debate is never is never good to me. And so basically uh, raising the threshold of, you know, to make it uh, harder to go to previous question. Yes, because we have some very, very important uh, things to discuss and we can't have things shoved down the throats of Missourians because we're trying to be unfair, uh, biased, you know, and greedy <laughs> to say the least. And so by that, you'll try to, uh, move to a previous question and cut off debate and just vote for it anyway, even though it's not a good piece of legislation. And so I think that was a, uh, I think that raising the number to cut off debate is brilliant. If the first two days are any indication of, of how session is going to go for the Senate, how do you think things are going to get done? <laughs> well, I think that it's going to be a whole lot of campaign speeches. <laughs> and I think that, you know, um, we have what we call big topic issues. And I think that it's going to be a whole lot of placating to the cameras and things like that. But, you know, sometimes you can step back and try to, you know, squeeze, slip things in there that'll be beneficial to the people. And I really think that we don't have what, what I call reality reality television going on. I think that, you know, we, we still have to be about the business of government. And um, with this right now, yeah, I'm hoping that we don't have a lot of reality TV. Well, you you actually touched on, on, on one of my questions that I was going to ask at the end, but I'll ask now because I because you brought it up. There are just so many people, especially in the Senate, who are going to be either running for Congress uh, there are going to be people in the House who are going to be running for state Senate or state auditor. I think that the pro tem is running for the U.S. Senate. Um, and, and frankly, there could be a couple of your Democratic colleagues that decide to take on Congresswoman Cori Bush. 
How is this going to affect the dynamics of getting meaningful legislation done? Well, let me tell you, I'm going to tell you this. So any legislation that you want to pass that doesn't have anything to do with those topics, you'll probably get it done because you can vote for it and get it out of the way. You get me? Because it's not going to affect, you know, those uh, those things, Congress, things like that. You know, uh, if they're one of those uh, topic, hot button topics we're talking about, such as, let's see, Medicaid expansion, such as uh, abortion, uh, such, you know, such as mono rights, things like that. If we get into those topics, those are the issues that they'll want to debate for a long time. They want to, you know, that they'll want to um, do campaign speeches on because those are topics that are still being debated federally. And so they'll try to debate them on the state level, you know, just to, um, like I said, create campaign speeches and um, sound bites. But if it's legislation that's, you know, um, easy to get through the legislature, we'll be able to get it done. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you an example. It's a bill that I'm trying to get passed that I've been uh, filing for a couple of years. What we're trying to do is it modifies provisions relating to uh, the, the suspension of licenses for failure to comply with the child support order. So that bill, for instance, it's not really a hot topic bill. All we're doing in the law is putting in um, what we call um, um, facts, findings of facts in the law. And so instead of the judge saying, you know, if you're behind or whatever, you, you're automatically, your license is automatically spending. Your driver's license and your occupation license is automatically spending. What we're just adding to the law is a hearing on fact finding. So the judge, they can present facts to the judge in that instance. So that should be an easy bill because it's not really a federal issue. We're not saying that we're not making a determination uh, on whether the judge shall or shall not, you know, spend the license. All we're saying is, can we add this fact finding hearing to the process so that, you know, they can present facts as to why or things like that. So uh, another kind of topic that's going to be pretty big this year is the budget. Uh, you are a member of the Senate Appropriations Committee, and one of those early issues that will come forward is a supplemental bill to authorize spending for Medicaid expansion. How do you think that debate is going to go? Well, now that's going to be one of those issues where, you know, uh, we're going to hear a lot of what I call um, debates in, in reference to um, the cost of spending. Uh, when it comes to Medicaid expansion. So most of this is covered by the federal government. We have enough money. The state has enough money surplus that it wouldn't cost us anything for the next six to seven years, you know, but they will have these conversations because this is still a, a issue that's debated federally. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this. This is going to be one of those issues where you're going to hear a lot of campaign sound bites on the floor. Uh, the judge, the courts have already ruled. So basically the state has to go ahead and they've already started taking applications. I don't know how many have come in already. So we've already started taking applications in reference to that expansion for people age 19 to 61, I do believe. And so they're going to have to spend it regardless because we've already had the courts to rule. But yes, you will find this will be one of those lengthy debates and 
it will be a one of those, you know, like I said, campaign speeches on the floor. So there have been some Republican senators who have talked about zeroing out Medicaid expansion. Um, I think Senator Denny Hoskins has mentioned that recently when I talked with Senator Bob Onder after the Supreme Court ruling. He, he also talked about that, but also predicated his comments that if Governor Parson didn't call a special session on this, then it would make this already questionable gambit politically disastrous, because as you mentioned, it would be kicking people off of Medicaid if it's successful. How do you think that that type of argument is going to play not only amongst Democrats who are clearly going to oppose it, but even among Republicans who Sarah and I have talked to basically said, you can't do that. And it's just kind of a fruitless effort at this point. When you're dealing with issues in the Senate, it's a lot of negotiations that's going to go on. And Governor Parsons doesn't have to run anymore. So, (laughs) you know, so, I mean, he's, you know, he's where he is. So he doesn't have to run anymore. Uh, I think it's 2024 or, you know, or 20, what is it, 2024, 2026? Yeah, I think he's done, he, he, because of the, when he came into office after Eric Wright yeah. resigned, he cannot run for another term. And I think anything, exactly. and anything now would be a downgrade. I think being governor is a pretty, pretty damn good job. Exactly. <laughs> Continue, Senator. And so, exactly. And so I think that, uh, you know, they, the Republicans have never wanted to expand Medicaid in the first place. And so this is one of those conversations where, you know, you'll see where they'll try to hold up the budget, uh, things like that, you know, and won't try to get anything done or try to block the budget. We'll try to force the session into a special session or try to force the governor to call a special session based on this one issue. Um, And so this is what you call, you'll see uh, negotiations going back and forth. Uh, It'll be leveraging, you know, uh, let's get this done, or they'll hold up this thing unless they get this. So, so you'll you're going to see a lot of back and forth. And unfortunately, um, you know, normally we always have to say since I've been there, we've always had these issues where you they they try to block the budget. One faction tries to block the budget or hold it up, but we always end up getting it done anyway. And I think that we'll be able to do the same thing this time because there's so much, so many other things that are on the table. You got me? So it's like, you know, it's like this side may want this, but this side wants this. So it's a lot of things on the table that's negotiable. So I think that we'll still be able to work through it. And I think we're still going to fund this Medicaid expansion, regardless of the uh, conversations that you hear. So shifting to the billions that Missouri is eventually going to have to allocate from the American Rescue Plan, you know, what are just some of your general thoughts on on how that funding should be spent? Well, I think that we have a lot of, first of all, let me think about, you know, where we can actually, you're talking about the ARPA funds, where can they be spent, first of all? So I know that it was some, uh, my main thing is uh, economic development. Uh, But, you know, I don't know, in reference to, I think you have to make sure that um, it has something to do with the uh, pandemic, you know, with the ARPA funds, if I'm, if I'm, you know, if I'm not right, you know, 
correct me. No, you're, 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 you're correct. I think there has to right. be some sort of nexus with the exactly. pandemic. You can't just spend and it so, on a, a giant statue of Carla May in the fourth district. For exactly. Example. See, I would love that though. <laughs> but um, I think the, the best way to do it is right now, especially in St. Louis city to me, you know, we have that part about the water, the sewer and the broadband infrastructure. I think it's key in shoring up the broadband infrastructure. I think that we should be able to go anywhere. People should be able to use Wi-Fi, you know, anywhere, you know? So I think that we definitely should spend, spend it shoring up the broadband. And I definitely think we should fix the sewer uh, infrastructure in the city. Uh, period. So if we can do anything, those would be three things that I think we should do, because I think that it gives us a broader um, uh, capacity to use those funds toward those those things. So I would definitely use it toward those things, you know, and, you know, um, providing some pay for essential workers is is important as well. How will you make sure that money for broadband also goes to help places like St. Louis and not, you know, more rural areas? We do, we definitely have a broadband issue in rural Missouri, but I think that we can balance the equation because broadband is essential to the entire state. And so uh, I think that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm like, you know, my grandmother used to always say, you know, she has to put it where the heaviest need is. You get me? And so we would definitely, you know, put. I think that in St. Louis, you know, the need might not as be as greater as the need in rural Missouri, but there are places in St. Louis that are, to me, that are just like rural Missouri that don't have broadband the way that they should. So I think that we can identify those places uh, in, in, in what we always do in the language, you know, of the law, where we, you know, look at places where there's high poverty, where there is some uh, infrastructure deterioration, things like that. And so you can put things in place in language that will point the money toward those areas first. And so I think we can accomplish that in our broadband language when we're dealing with those funds. I've seen a few trains of thought on, on how to spend this money. There's the argument that it's one-time money. It should be spent on, on one-time purchases. There's the idea of just, you know, we have this money, we should spend it, and, and, we'll, and we'll find the funding. There's another idea that, you know, we should maybe spend it on newer programs that maybe have an upfront cost, but then can either sustain themselves down the line or would save the state money. What are your thoughts on kind of how this should be spent uh, as far as, you know, how it should be spent? Well, you know, when I look at uh, things in the house, I think that, you know, before I begin new projects, I need to sure up the projects that are already out here that we already have, you know, making sure that those projects are fully funded, that they're operational and that they're being executed appropriately. I would do that. And, you know, when I'm talking about, we've been arguing about broadband in this legislature since I was in the Missouri House. So I think that we need to solve that problem I am a firm believer on taking things off the table. And so we need to solve the broadband problem, take it off the table. We definitely need to solve the sewer issue because people are complaining about sewer bills and things like that going up. So we need to solve that issue. Uh, you know, sewer runoff versus spring water. Uh, the city's infrastructure, the sewer infrastructure is so antiquated and old. I think that these are some of the things that we need to solve 
and take it off the table before we begin, you know, new projects, because it will be all over the place. Why not use this money to solve those issues since it's one-time money? And then we can talk about the infrastructure money that we have, and then we can pick up new projects with that. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Senator Carla May. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Senator Carla May. She is a Democrat from St. Louis. Okay, you mentioned redistricting on the outset. Um, It's no secret that this is one of my favorite topics in the world. So I'm going to subject you to more redistricting questions because it brings me great joy. What do you think about the proposed congressional map that Representative Dan Shaw put out right before January 1st? The Democrats had some questions about that map. Uh, They felt like they didn't, there wasn't any input. They didn't accept any input from the Democrats in reference to the map is what I'm told. So I think that, um, you know, I think that, and I'm, I I bet I'm more speaking probably with Bernsketter's map uh, than Dan's map, because I'm more familiar with his map than with the other one. But I think that it was some questions in reference to the Democrats and they didn't pick up the Democratic position. So I don't think, I think it's some, uh, what's going to happen is when that map hits the floor, they, they already have a uh, map that they want to present or an amendment that they want to that map. And so you're going to see debate around uh, amending that map to include, you know, what, uh, what the Democrats wanted in that map because they did not include it. And that's my understanding. So right now, as it stands, I think it's going to be a lot of debate in reference to that map. And you will probably see, you know, some conversations going on and, and some filibustering. Oh, there's going to be a lot of filibustering. We'll get to that in a second. And, and, and Burns Sketter is a reference to the senator from Cole County, who is the uh, chairman of the Senate Redistricting Committee. I want to talk specifically about the first congressional district where both both of us live. It lost about 50,000 people, so it has to expand yeah. into St. Louis County. Um, and I think regardless of where you go, so let's just say you go with what Representative Shaw wants to do and just add a bunch of Webster Groves and Kirkwood area, or whether you go into like Creepcore, Maryland Heights, it would still keep the district as a minority plurality district. I don't think you could get over 50%, but I still think it would make it likely a black candidate would win the Democratic primary. Uh, do you have any specific preferences about where you would want the first district to expand into? Well, uh, currently, the way the map looks right now, it, it's actually... Um, I represent most of that area right now because I have represent the uh, Clayton area, the Brentwood, the, you know, part of Webster Groves, that area. But I think that the intention of the map or the first congressional district was, yes, it had to expand, but I thought it was supposed to expand more northwest than southwest. And so I think that's where you're going to have some contention. At. In fact, I was talking with State Representative Crystal Quaid and she put forward a bill that was kind of a work with some of the House Democrats on the House Redistricting Committee 
that would go northwest and would actually go into St. Charles County, um, which I think would probably help make the second district more competitive. But uh, what do you think of that idea before I ask my follow up on that? Well, I think that, you know, picking up more of Maryland Heights and Creek 4, you know, and maybe part of St. Charles, you know, would, you know, would be uh, better. And I think that you can make the second congressional district more competitive, and I think it should be. I, I, I think that uh, some Democrats who are allied with Congresswoman Cori Bush may not like that because they may see that as an attempt to make it easier to defeat her in a primary uh, what do you think about that? What do you think about that pushback from within your own party? Well, I have not spoken with uh, the congressman, so I am I can't you know say you know what position they are looking at. Um, I haven't gotten any information as to, uh, and I didn't review the testimony, you know, within the committee. So I haven't looked at the testimony for the committee on the congressional maps. But as we get into the debate. I mean, I'm sure all of it will come to fruition. Uh, I would love to, uh, so I would just reserve that so that I can look at, you know, what her comments would be in reference to how the map looked. But it's important for us when we're talking about these congressional districts is we do want to, you know, if it's a possibility to win, you know, that second, you know, that second seat, the second congressional district, I think it would be, you know, democratically in our interest to make that seat competitive, you know, if we if it's a possibility, because we've almost won it a couple of times. Yeah. And, and my only this is my observation about about what happens with Cori Bush ne- uh, this year. I almost said next year, but we are in 2022. Uh, I think you could redraw the district any way you want. But if she wins the African-American vote, which she did not do in 2020, I, I think she wins almost automatically. So I don't really think it really matters whether you go Southwest or Webster Groves and maybe her share of the white vote goes down. If she wins North City and North County, she wins almost automatically. For me, uh, the area where the map is right now, you know, like I said, that's part of my district right now. So I represent those constituent bases right now. And I think it's a pretty good constituent base, uh, especially, you know, when it when it comes to Democrats. Uh, I'm going to say this, you know, I think that um, we have to, we definitely have to maintain a a congressional district that African-Americans can win. Uh, Unfortunately, that's the reality of the uh, country we live in right now. Uh, But I believe that people will vote for the candidate. Uh, You know, uh, if they like the candidate, they're going to vote for the candidate. And when we're trying to, uh, what we have to try to do in this instance is we definitely want to, you know, make sure that she can retain, you know, uh, the district, but I'm kind of, I think I will agree with it going more uh, Northwest than Southwest. Mm -hmm. Because I think that going Southwest is maybe a little bit more uh, dangerous than going Northwest. Yeah, I understand what you're. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. Just because the Webster Groves area is probably whiter, and then the Northwest area, while it's still pretty white, 
is more racially diverse in general. I think Maryland Heights is, exactly. is, is diversifying. So I, I get what you're saying. I and, think that will be in her favor if it, actually, if it goes more Northwest than Southwest. Right. And you know, she has to, she has to win reelection. So that'll be up to her. Uh, let's move to, but before we get into other topics, I do think that uh, some of your colleagues who are from Kansas City are paying really, really close attention to this uh, Republican angst over not going after the 5th District, which is held by Emanuel Cleaver. I I think that this is a die-on-the-sword issue for some Kansas City Democratic senators because, number one, they want to make sure Cleaver's going to win, but number two— Frankly, they may want to run for Congress one day, and they probably want to run in a plus 20 Democratic district and not a plus 15 Republican district. Uh, how important is it for your caucus to make sure that that district remains a heavily Democratic outpost? It's very important. It's very important. So, I mean, and for me, we need to have in this state, we have eight congressional districts it should at least be more democratic seats that are winnable. So for me, it should be like a, uh, instead of a, you know, they got it as a 7-1, uh, a, a it should be more like a, uh, you know, if we got eight, it should be a 5-3. But it, it probably will be closer to 6-2. But Sarah has yeah. a question. Yeah. And, and so do you feel that those efforts, you know, the 7-1 the group, you know, do you feel like that's a tangible threat? It seems like Senate leadership is leaning 6-2 anyway. I mean, do you see a lot of compromise possibly happening if the conservative caucus really sets their sight on a 7-1 map and therefore Democrat support would be needed to pass a map? Uh, I think that um, I think that the way the Senate is now, that map is not going anywhere. I'm just going to be honest. A seven to one map, you mean? No, because it's going to blow up the entire Senate. And with the number of there's no longer supermajority in the House. You remember, every map still got to get through the House and you're going to need two thirds vote to pass any of these maps. Yeah, it's not a simple majority. And, And also, and I don't think people are talking about this. Let's just say Bill Igle was able to wave his magic wand, and he got a 7-to-1 map done. Uh, if I'm Senators Razor, Rizzo, Washington, and Arthur, I would filibuster every single bill for the rest of the session as retaliation for that. And they could. Yeah, right. They're all really good filibusters, you know? That's right. It's going to blow up the Senate. And, you know, and just me by myself, you know, I can go two days at least. If you wanted to blow up the Senate, too, you could. You know, you could, you could, could do it for fun, you know? You know? Um, so in our last few minutes, I want to, we, we did a lightning round with uh, representative Deaton. I'm going to actually let Sarah do this lightning round of, of questions before <laughs> I make a, a thr- make a thrilling announcement after this. Ooh. All right. Uh, so you're welcome to, <laughs> you're welcome to answer this in like a sentence or two. <laughs> it doesn't have to be like one word. Uh, okay. so here we go. Do you think the legislature should pass its own marijuana legislation bill to get ahead of the ballot initiative that is likely to make the 2022 ballot? Well, I think that uh, for me, I would rather do it in the legislature because I think that uh, we can really debate it, you know, and get a lot of uh, things that we want in there. So, and we can, but I don't think they will do it because they never want it. I filed when I was in the house, I filed a, a, 
a full expansion of medical marijuana, uh, of marijuana, not just medical marijuana, and they didn't want to take a vote on that bill. So I don't think they would want to take a vote on it in this election year. How confident are you that Democrats will be able to stop the GOP from reimposing a government-issued photo ID requirement to vote? Oh, I'm confident. I think we'll be able to do it because there's so many other things on the table. So I think that, you know, this is, that's just one of those, uh, that's a campaign speech right there. And that's just playing into the uh, dynamics of the federal voter, voter rights bill right now. So they want to put in the voter ID bill. So they're trying to placate to their base. So this is one of those issues that they're trying to do. So kind of a, a part two, would Democrats in the Senate stand down on that if the bill includes an in-person absentee ballot period for any reason? Well, I can't say if we'll stand down on it because I always have to say I need to see the language of the bill. And if I can't see it in writing where well, I can go line by line. Mm -mm. So, you know, it depends on how it's written. And we would never probably stand down on voter ID. It depends on how that bill is written. What do you expect on the education front this year? Republicans, you know, possibly could try to stamp out racial diversity curriculum for public schools. Is that something that could remain an issue? Uh, it seems like with so many other issues going on, I don't know if they're going to get into that debate, but it's possible. Anything is possible, you know, with this, uh, with this Senate and all of the amount of people that's running for uh, election, they like to throw up what I call red herrings, what I call chasers, you know, in the military, they send out chasers when you, you know, you got bombs, they love chasers. So it'll be a lot of chasers out there that are just rhetoric. So that might be one of those rhetorics. And the final question is, will the filing period have to be moved, especially with uncertainty about the state legislative maps? I am told that is a possibility because of the fact that we don't have uh, a map and they haven't agreed on a map. And the filing, if they, you know, February the 29th and the map is not voted on by then, I'm told that's a huge possibility. Well, Senator, thank you as always for, for coming on the show. But before we do the whole like, where do you, we follow you on Twitter and, you know, St. Louis Public Radio owns Politically Speaking. And it's part of the University of Missouri, St. Louis. I, I do have an announcement to make for our listeners. So this will actually be the last show that I will be a part of um, for two and a half months. Um, there is another episode that's going to come after this where I'm on it with the Missouri Farm Bureau, but this is the last one we're recording. I am taking advantage of Family Medical Leave Act to spend the next two and a half months taking care of my daughter, Adele Todd Bosenbaum. Her name is Bosenbaum, by the way, because the hospital uh, mistakenly put her name as Bosenbaum, and, I, and the vital records department with the state has not changed her name yet. So I'm being super accurate here. It's the right thing to do. And I also believe pretty strongly that dads should bond with their kids um, for a significant amount of time. And we should not just expect this to be only something a woman does. And even though two and a half months is a long time and I'm going to miss a lot of things, um, I'm really excited to be doing this because when I come back, uh, we're going to be entering the craziest election cycle maybe I've ever seen. And I will be very much ready with Sarah, Jonathan All, Eric Schmid, and Rachel Lipman to cover it. But in the meantime, the rest of the St. Louis Public Radio political team 
is not only more than capable of continuing on this podcast, they're exceptionally capable. And um, I am looking forward to listening while I am feeding Adele Bosenbaum a bottle. So with that verbose announcement out of the way, thank you all very much. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter, Sarah? They can follow me at Sarah K. Kellogg. That's Kellogg with two Gs. And how could people follow you, Senator, either on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? They can follow me at Carla May, M04, on Twitter. Thank, thank you very much. And until next time, so long. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East, we put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.